Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at GodSolutionShow.com. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. I'm Grant Persett. And we are excited to be interviewing Dr. Richard Bauckham on the show today. Dr. Bauckham is a biblical scholar and theologian who's respected around the globe. In recent years, his work is focused on Jesus and the Gospels. Some of his best-known books are Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, God Crucified, and The Theology of the Book of Revelation. This interview will focus on his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. The 10th anniversary, second edition of that book, will be available in April. It's going to have three new chapters. You can pre-order it now at Amazon. You can find out more about Richard Bauckham at Richard Bauckham, and Bauckham is spelt B-A-U-C-K-H-A-M dot co dot U-K. Again, that's Richard Bauckham dot co dot U-K. Well, without any further ado, let's get to the interview. Welcome to the God Solutions Show, Dr. Richard Bauckham. Hello. It's great having you on. How is it over there in uh, England right now? Oh, it's very cold, but it's quite, quite pleasant. I had the privilege of spending a day in London uh, about a year ago, and uh, it was a beautiful city. First time I've been there, so uh, it, it's a beautiful place. Oh, glad you liked it. You should come to Cambridge next time you come. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to give it a shot. All right, so let's jump right into the interview questions. Your book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, has received a lot of praise. Will you summarize the main points of this book for our audience? Well, the basic argument of the book was that the text of our Gospels is quite close to the testimony of the eyewitnesses. I think that one of our four Gospels is actually written by an eyewitness, um, and the others are quite closely based on eyewitness testimony, yet at most third-hand, first, second, or third-hand. So... Uh, that's quite different from the usual scholarly picture in the 20th century of the traditions about Jesus being handed down by word of mouth, you know, pass, passing through any number of intermediaries before they got to the Gospel writers. I'm really asked, arguing the Gospel writers um, had the material from the eyewitnesses um, pretty close to the eyewitnesses themselves. All right, and you are releasing in a few months uh, an, an updated 10th anniversary version edition of this book. Yes. We're excited yes. to see that. I would encourage the listeners, if you haven't read the book yet, to pick it up. And if you have read it, pick up the newest edition coming out in a few months. So you titled this book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Why should we believe that the New Testament has eyewitness accounts? Well, there are a number of reasons for that. Um, I think, first of all, it's, it's important to appreciate the, the literary genre of the Gospels. And most scholars now agree that the Gospels are ancient biographies. They fall into a rather broad category of biography of, of a famous person in the ancient world. Um, now, the important thing about that is that um, biographies that were written within living memory, what one might call contemporary biographies of, of people who'd lived recently, um, were expected to be based on eyewitness sources. Um, and they were expected really to conform to what ancient people thought about the writing of history in the ancient world, which is that, that really you could only write contemporary history um, because you had to be writing history while the eyewitnesses were available. 
for you to interview them. So the author of a, of a, of a work of history should be either an eyewitness himself of some of the events, at least, or he should have met and interviewed the people who had been eyewitnesses. Um, ancient historians valued very, very highly the sort of insider view of things that you could only get from actually meeting and interviewing the eyewitnesses. If the Gospels are that sort of biography, then their first readers would have expected them to embody eyewitness testimony. Therefore, I think we have to have reasons for not thinking that the Gospels are based on eyewitness testimony. That the historical probability is that, that, is that they were. We, that's what we should expect. The kind of literature they are should lead us to expect that they are based on eyewitness testimony. That sounds good, Dr. Bauckham. Will you please describe why ancient testimony is so important in the first place? Yes, as I was saying, ancient historians, historians of the ancient world, um, put a lot of their faith in eyewitness testimony. Um, they, they didn't, of course, have all the kinds of records that modern historians have. Um, by far the best sources for them, in most cases, uh, would be eyewitnesses, people who had been there present at the events. Um, quite often they claimed they'd been there themselves. The Jewish historian Josephus, writing his account of the Jewish war, tells us in his preface that he was present for, for many of the events and for the others he, he, he knew people who had been. Um, so he stresses how close to the events he had been. Um, so it's that sort of closeness to the events um, that ancient historians valued. It's really rather like modern oral history, where people write history within living memory, and they do so by interviewing uh, people who could uh, tell them about what they remembered, um, rather than documentary history, where you go to the archives and, uh, and research the, the documents. So why should we trust the accounts we read of Jesus in the Gospels? Well, I, I would say one could think along two lines. One of them is what I've just said about eyewitnesses, that I think uh, we should expect the Gospels to be based on eyewitness testimony. And we can then look at the Gospels and say, are there features of them that indicate um, the eyewitnesses on which these accounts were based? Um, the other line of approach is quite different. I didn't really do this in the book because I was focused on the eyewitness question, but the other line of approach, which I think is very important, is we know a great deal about Jewish Palestine in the time of Jesus. And so we can, as it were, test the way the Gospels portray the context of Jesus and his ministry against what we know of, of, of that time and place. Um, do the Gospels represent you know, the political context, the religious context, the geography, all those kinds of things? Do the Gospels um, reflect what things were really like? in the time of Jesus. Um, and that's an important approach, I think, um, and I think it can be shown that, that they do reflect that. Um, and remember that everything changed in AD 70 when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. Um, the context of life in first century Palestine changed dramatically in AD 70. So we really are looking for a reflection of what things were like before that. Um, and one interesting comparison, I think, is with the so-called Gnostic Gospels, the Apocryphal Gospels from Nagamadi. Um, and they have no context. Hardly ever do they refer to anything in the historical context of Jesus. Um, so they don't provide, as it were, that kind of material that you can test against 
um, what we know historically of, of the place and the time. But, but the four Gospels in the New Testament, they, they do provide a lot of that stuff, and, and we can test it. So we can trust what the Gospels and the New Testament says about Jesus because of eyewitness testimony, one, and then two, the lack of anachronisms. Would that be a, a safe way to put it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, that's putting it rather negatively. I think more positively, the, the detail about the context of Jesus that, that they reflect. I mean, for example, you know, what they say about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, the detail of geography that you get, particularly in Mark and John, um, quite a lot of quite positive things um, mm -hmm. that, that reflect that time and place. Awesome. Okay, now various scholars paint a very different picture of the historical Jesus. And of course, people are familiar with the Jesus Seminar and things like that. What is wrong with these alternative perspectives of Jesus that really differ with what we see in the Gospels? I think at the end it comes down to methodology. Um, I think the reason why in the 20th century scholars have come up with a whole set of different um, views of Jesus, representations of Jesus, um, is because they start with the idea that the Gospels as we have them are not very trustworthy. And so the first thing they have to do as a historian is to try to distinguish the authentic material from the inauthentic material um, so that they can then base their picture of Jesus on the genuinely authentic material. Um, and therefore then they use that material in order to, as it were, reconstruct a Jesus behind the Gospels rather than the Jesus we find in the Gospels. But if you're doing that reconstructive, there's a whole lot of conjecture and um, uh, supposition, I and mean, an awful lot of things go on in that kind of reconstruction, which means that what we actually have is, you know, Jesus according to such and such a scholar. Instead of Jesus according to Matthew or according to Mark, we have Jesus according to John Dominic Crossan or whoever, you know, dozens of people one could instance. Um, now, very often these pictures of Jesus, I think, are very helpful in that they, they, they do um, give us some interesting insights into aspects of Jesus. Um, but I think they're reductionist. They're, they're reducing the evidence. Um, and that's why they come up with very different pictures. And I think what the history of this shows is that if that's what we have to do, if we have to distinguish the authentic from the inauthentic material um, and get back to a real Jesus, um, we can't do it. You know, the, the methods that scholars are using obviously don't work. It's pretty clear by now um, that the whole variety of different pictures of Jesus that, that they've come up with shows that there's something basically wrong with the method, I think. Um, so I think we should go back to what is actually a more normal historical historian's technique, uh, which is to assess the reliability of the sources we have, um, rather than starting by presupposing that they're untrustworthy unless we can show that they are trustworthy in this or that detail. Uh, we should start by saying, for example, does Mark seem to be a generally reliable source? Is it a good source? Does it come from people who, people who knew what they were talking about? Um, and once you have done that, you can assess the trustworthiness of the source. And then, then you can't verify every detail. You know, I've never said that as a historian, I can be certain that everything in Mark's gospel happened, because history isn't like that. It's a matter of probabilities. Um, but one can say that on the whole, this is a reliable account, and then you have to go with it. Mm. Hey, Dr. Bauckham, can you please explain the basic importance of the accuracy 
of the first century Palestinian Jewish names. And, and before you start, I just want to thank you for doing this work because I've used this in um, witnessing encounters with people. And it, if you would entertain my idea here, I just have a way that um, I'm thinking of sharing it with people. And if you could tell me if it's accurate as you explain it. Okay. Um, so I've given or I've thought of kind of just a story of saying, hey, I, I'm writing a book about uh, that's taking place in the 1850s in France. And the main character's name is Pierre. And he's married to a lady and she has, you know, her name is Mary or something. And so I write this book as a and claim that it's a historical fiction that Pierre really lived, but that I'm just embellishing ideas about his life. And after I publish the book, somebody comes back to me and says, you know what, I can tell that this is completely false. And when I ask why, he says, well, according to research, the name Pierre was not used in France before 1900. Now, I'm completely making that up. I don't know the history of names in France. But mm -hmm. if, if it were true that the name Pierre was never used in 1850, that would look very suspect for that story. Um, do you think that that story has an analogy as you explain the accuracy of the uh, first century Palestinian names? Um, yes, but I think one has to be a bit more precise about it. Uh, we're not just talking about whether names were used or not. We're talking about the relative frequency with mm -hmm. which names were used. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the London Times every year publishes a, a list of the most popular names in that year. Uh, so you, you know that you know, William was the most popular name, shall we say, in 2007, uh, and, and so on. Um, now, we can do that for ancient Jewish names in Palestine at the time of Jesus, because we have so much information. We've got about 3,000 names to, to, to base our statistics on. And so we can, know, we can know, for example, that overwhelmingly most popular male name was the name Simon, um, and, and so on. And, uh, you know, we have enough names, and for, for the most popular names, you know, we can be pretty sure, I think, of uh, how frequently they were used. Um, and, and these are statistics specifically for Jewish Palestine. They don't apply in the Jewish diaspora. Um, so if you were familiar with how names were used, shall we say, in uh, in, in, in Jewish circles in Rome, that would not help because we're talking about Palestine. Um, now, if you put all the Gospels together and the information in Acts about Palestinian Jews, all that information from the Gospels and Acts about Palestinian Jews, and you analyze it for frequency, and you find, for example, that the name Simon is the most common male name in the Gospels, um, and you find that the proportions correlate very closely with those we have from the, the general statistics. Um, that's, I think, what is impressive, because even if you lived in first century Palestine and you were writing this entirely fictionally, you were making up names, you might, you might have a sense that Simon was the most popular name. But actually, if you had to then say what is the second most popular, third most, you really wouldn't know. You can't really tell that if you just live in the society. You have to have records like the London Times relies on, um, information that they didn't have. So even if you lived in first century Palestine and you were making up names, you would not come up with the same, um, the, the same relative frequency of names uh, as, as one finds in, in, in the Gospels, I think. Um, and I, the other thing, actually, is that people writing fiction usually do not have 
a lot of people with the same name. You know, even if you were, even if you know that Mary was a very common name, you wouldn't have half your women called Mary because it's confusing in the fiction. Um, the Gospels have a whole lot of people called Mary, and Mary, and, and Mary was an incredibly common female name. So I think the, the way the names are used, um, the way the relative frequency turns out, um, and, that, and that is based on putting the Gospels together. So nobody wrote all of it. You know, there are four different documents. Put them together, and you get this relative frequency. I think that's very impressive. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution. We are interviewing Dr. Richard Bauckham about the eyewitness testimony in the New Testament. And Dr. Bauckham, do you think this is an, a good argument that we have an accurate transmission of the records? In other words, since we see the accuracy of the names and their frequency, doesn't that show that the, the names have not been changed over time? Yes, it, 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 exactly. I, I, th- I think it shows that the, these people were real people whose names were passed on in, in the tradition. And the, you know, the gospel writers um, had, had received these names. I think in many cases, the names indicate the person who first told the story. Um, I'm not talking here about the, 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 you know, the, the major names, the people who run right through the Gospels. If you think of the minor characters, for example, the blind beggar Bartimaeus, um, Mark tells his story, um, and he gives us the name Bartimaeus, he makes actually quite a point of it. Um, I think the probability is that Bartimaeus is named in that story um, because he himself told his story, and Mark or Peter knew it as Bartimaeus historian, so they, they, they told it with his name attached to it. Um, and Mark has various other healing miracles where he doesn't tell us the name of the person. It's actually not very common that he tells us the name of someone who Jesus healed. He turns up in the gospel just on that one occasion. One probably wouldn't expect a name for those minor characters, but where Mark gives it to us, Bartimaeus is one. Jairus, Jairus' daughter was healed, is another one. Um, I think that's a good chance that those stories actually were originally told by Bartimaeus and Jairus, and that's why we have the names. Mm. Thank you, Dr. Bauckham. Again, thank you for because I, I use these with people, and I, I think it um, it makes them think more about Christian Christianity and their faith and the transmission of the documents, so I appreciate your work. Um, moving on, what what is the value of the writings of Papias? Okay, well, Papias... Um, Basically, Papias is the first writer that we have, apart from the New Testament itself, which tells us anything about the origins of the Gospels. Um, Papias was writing early in the second century, probably quite near the beginning of the second century. But he talks about, in these fragments, we've only got, sadly, we've only got little fragments of Papias quoted by later writers. He wrote a big book. Um, and, you know, if, if I could wish for some book from the ancient world to turn up in the sands of Egypt, I would want Papias. But sadly, we just had these few fragments. But there are fragments in which he talks about the origins of the Gospels. And he tells us, actually, that he himself collected Gospel traditions to, to, to write a book about them. And he was doing that in around the 80s. So although he's writing in the early 2nd century, he's talking about a period in... Uh, towards the end of the second, uh, towards the end of the first century, probably around 80, um, when he was collecting traditions and he talked to people who had known 
the disciples of Jesus. And he also had traditions from a couple of the disciples of Jesus who were still around at the time. So Paleus had very good contacts. He was in a very good position to know about the origins of the Gospels. Um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 think, I think that um, we should therefore give great weight to his testimony, um, unless, again, unless we have good reason to doubt it. Now, just a side note, I've asked some other scholars that have been on this question, but he also mentions Matthew's Hebrew and Aramaic gospel. And just a question, is, is that possibly Q? Is that an Aramaic or Hebrew text that, that Mark later drew from and that maybe Matthew even referred to after that fact as well as Mark's writing? Um, is, is that possibly what, what scholars refer to when they, when they think of Q or maybe unrelated? Okay, that's a difficult one. Um, I'm fairly confident I know what, what Papus says when he's talking about Mark. Much more difficult to see what he means when he talks about Matthew. And he talks about Matthew having been translated from Hebrew, or he could be Aramaic. <clears throat> um, I don't actually myself think that he existed, so that option is not available to me. Um, it used to be a very popular idea that Papus must be referring to Q. But, it, it, you know, even if you think Q existed, it's a hypothesis, and then you've got to hypothesize that Q existed in Hebrew or Aramaic, and we don't know that, even if we, even people who think we know Q don't necessarily think Q was written in Hebrew or Aramaic before it was translated into Greek. So I think there's a whole lot of speculation involved there, um, and I, I must admit, I, I just don't know really what PPS thought that he knew about Matthew. Um, it's, a, it's a very obscure comment, and I think sometimes we just have to say, you know, we, we, we don't understand a bit of historical evidence. Sometimes we have to admit we don't know. <laughs> when it comes to what PPL said about Matthew, at the moment, I, I would say I, I just don't know. I don't know what to make of that. And Dr. Bacham, what are your main arguments you use as the evidence that Mark used Peter as a source for his gospel? Um, well, there are two lines of evidence, I think. One of them is that Papias said so. Um, Papias said that Mark uh, worked as Peter's interpreter, probably means translator, so that Mark maybe translated um, Peter's preaching in, into, into Greek um, for a Greek-speaking audience. Peter probably knew some Greek, but maybe he wasn't terribly good at it, so Mark preferred to translate Peter's Aramaic. Um, Papias implies that that's what Mark did orally, um, but then when he wrote his gospel, he, he was drawing on um, Peter's, uh, Peter's accounts of Jesus. Um, so Mark's gospel, according to Papias, is very largely at least based upon Peter's accounts of Jesus. Um, that's, as it were, the external evidence. It's not what Mark's gospel tells us. It's, it's what the earliest evidence outside Mark's gospel says about Mark's gospel. Um, now, the reason why quite a lot of scholars in the, in the 20th century didn't really trust Papias on this, is that they said, well, if you, if you look at the gospel itself, it doesn't seem to show any sign of coming from Peter. So it's also important to show that Mark has, as it were, internal evidence of being based on Peter's, uh, Peter's account. Um, and, that, and that's something that's relatively fresh in, in my argument in the book. And I argue that one should actually just look at the way the name Peter occurs in the Gospel of Mark. And Peter is much the most frequently named person after Jesus himself. 
uh, Peter is actually there at almost all the events of the Gospels, up until the point where he denies Jesus uh, at the time of Jesus' trial. Um, Peter is actually the first disciple to be named in Mark's Gospel, when Mark, Mark uh, tells the story of Jesus calling Peter and Andrew and James and John. Peter is the first disciple to be named. He's also named right at the end of the Gospel, uh, when the angel tells the women at the tomb to go and tell Peter and the other disciples. Um, so the, the vein Peter, as it were, encloses the whole ministry of Jesus as Mark relates it, and occurs, the same name occurs uh, frequently within that uh, account. Um, now, if you start off with the thought I, I, I spoke about earlier, that a biography of this kind would be expected to be based on eyewitness testimony. So people reading Mark's Gospel would have been, as it were, alert to indications of who was the eyewitness behind Mark's Gospel. I think that pattern of naming um, Peter throughout the Gospel, beginning and end, and very frequently in between, um, would suggest to people that this material comes from Peter. And um, just one other thing I would add, uh, Peter is there almost all through the story until the point where he denies Jesus, and then he drops out of the story. And the things that happened then, of course, the crucifixion itself, the death of Jesus, um, the burial of Jesus, and the empty tomb, those events in Mark, one might think, would be the most important events of all. I mean, those are the, those are the events you really, really need eyewitnesses for. Um, and at that point, where Mark no longer has Peter as his eyewitness, he actually supplies very obviously, um, other eyewitnesses. And, and those are the, principally, the, um, the, the three women whom, uh, whom Mark names, the three women disciples um, who Mark names at, standing at the cross. They see Jesus die. Two of them see Jesus buried. Three of them go to the empty tomb. And Mark keeps telling us that they saw and they observed and they noticed. Um, they don't know anything much else. They just see and observe. I think Mark is clearly telling us that those women are the eyewitnesses on whom he's relied for those crucial events at the end of the story. Um, and the point that the fact that they come in just at the point where Peter, as it were, leaves the story and can't act as an eyewitness, I think confirms the idea that Peter is the eyewitness most of the way through, and then the women take over in, in the last few events. Those are those are very good arguments, and and uh, I'm going off memory here, but I believe that when um, the story that, you know, the rooster will crow, um, bef you know, three times. Um, yes. I, be I believe in that story, Mark gives more detail. Um, would you agree that giving more detail there lends credence to the idea that he had direct access to Peter? Um, he is more detailed. Of course, Mark is more detailed about most things. In other words, Luke mm. and Matthew always abbreviate Mark. When they, when they take material from Mark, they always abbreviate it. And that's because they want to put lots of other stuff in their, their Gospels. So they've got to leave room for other stuff. So they always abbreviate Mark. So that in itself, I don't think, is very significant. But um, the fact that, you know, who, who could ever have told this story? I mean, the story could only have come from Peter in the first place. No one else would know it. Um, and who would tell that story that's so apparently discreditable to Peter? Um, I, I think it makes sense that, that that's Peter's own story. I mean, some people think Peter couldn't have told that story because it's so discreditable to him. Um, but I think it's rather like Paul telling us how he persecuted the church before he became a Christian. Um, it's kind of telling us what went wrong and then 
then he becomes the, the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter tells us what went wrong, and then he became the, you know, the, the, the leading member of the early Christian movement. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Dr. Bacham. Pick up the second part of this interview next week. Well, the evidence for the reliability of the New Testament continues to be proven again and again, and you can trust the message that we read in the Gospels. And that message is that there's hope for each and every human being, that God loves us and created us for a relationship with him, but that as sinners, we've been separated from a perfect God. Thankfully, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, lived a perfect life and died the death that we deserved on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin that whoever would believe in him would be saved, adopted into his family. If you've never taken that step to believe in Jesus Christ, to put your faith and trust in him alone for salvation, why not do that right now? If that is where you're at, you could verbalize your faith saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are and that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again to give me new life. Please come into my life as Savior and Lord today. I hope that you'll take that step if you haven't. And if you have, I pray that you'd share your faith with your friends. So many people desperately need to hear the gospel. Well, tune back in next week for the second part of the interview and go to GodSolutionShow.com to pick up past interviews and shows. Well, like I always say, an open mind, an honest heart, a humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful afternoon. You've been listening to The God Solution. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at GodSolutionShow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.